Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 71, Dungeons & Dragons, 4th Edition. This week, we dig into the edition of Dungeons & Dragons that seems, in my opinion anyway, to be one of the most controversial editions of the game ever released. I realize that might be considered by many to be a bold statement, but 4th edition seems to have a lot of what wrestling fans would call go-away heat. Why is that? Well, we'll dig into that as we go through the various books that make up the edition, but I'll give you the short answer right here, and this is just my opinion, by the way. Based on many of the changes made between 3rd edition and 4th edition, there's a significant portion of the D&D gaming community that felt, and still feels, by the way, that Wizards of the Coast was, due to heat from the corporate parent Hasbro, altering the game to entice video game players who never played the game to pick it up and give it a try. In short, some folks were calling it playing to the munchkins. Like I said, we'll get deeper into this as we go along, but that's my thoughts on where all the hate comes from. Now, I have my own reasons for being disappointed with 4th edition, but again, I'm going to hold those for later. 4th edition D&D was formally announced on August 15th, 2007, At the time, Wizards announced that they were developing the new edition and that playtesting was ongoing. In an attempt to not only prepare the gaming market for the game's release, but also to entice players to change editions, there were two preview books released. Wizards Presents Races and Classes in December of 2007, and Wizards Presents Worlds and Monsters in January of 2008. Now, before we even get into the releases of the core rule books, we walk into the first batch of issues folks had with 4th edition, and this one was a financial one. See, 3rd edition had come out in 2000, and the 3.5 edition had come out in 2003. So what some folks were pissed off about was the fact that they'd been buying books for four years in the case of 3.5 edition, and Wizards was already changing editions. Needless to say, this also annoyed a number of retailers, since they'd taken in a lot of 3.5 edition stock, and now they'd have to find a way to sell it off, most likely at a loss, so they could carry the 4th edition when it was released. Also, it should be pointed out that by this point, Wizards had released dozens of different books for the entirety of the 3rd edition 3.5 edition, many of which we covered in our 3rd edition episode, available in the archives. I mean, I know just for myself that I'd spent hundreds of dollars at that point on the new edition edition thinking it would last as long as second edition had and i have to admit i was a little bit perturbed when the announcement for fourth edition was made but i decided to employ a wait and see attitude as did a number of other gamers and retailers however there's another interesting side note here wizard's announcement of the basic abandonment of third edition and the open game license that came with it caused the creation of a game that's been competing with D ever since pathfinder That's also an episode we've already done, and it's available in the archives. However, the TLDR on that is that for the segment of the game community that wanted new stuff, but wanted it in their third edition they were accustomed to by that point, Pathfinder swore they'd fill that need. And to this point, they've done admirably at it. But this is a D&D episode, so let's get fourth edition released. On June 6, 2008, the 4th edition Player's Handbook was released. Now, the original plan was for the core rulebooks to be released over a three-month period, one each month, but there was a clamoring from players to have all the books dropped at the same time, which, if you think about it, makes a hell of a lot more sense. I mean, how are you going to run a new game with just a Player's Handbook? Just saying. 
So all three books were released on the same date, but I'm going to cover their specifics separately. The Player's Handbook, subtitled Divine and Martial Heroes, was designed by Rob Heinsu, Andy Collins, and James Wyatt. From a character standpoint, the book had the cleric, fighter, paladin, ranger, rogue, warlock, warlord, and wizard classes, and the dragonborn, dwarf, eladrin, elf, human, half-elf, halfling, and tiefling races. Now, for those familiar with 3rd edition, you've already seen the first couple of big changes, in that the warlock and warlord classes were included at the expense of the monk and bard, just to name two, while the dragonborn, eladrin, and tiefling were included, and gnomes and half-orcs were excluded, just to name two. At the time, wizards promised fans that the races and classes that had been omitted from what they were calling the first player's handbook would be included in another release. But here again, Wizards managed to piss off more gamers with some of the choices they made with inclusion and exclusion in this initial release. But um, I'm nowhere near done with Wizards pissing people off. It continued with the Dungeon Master's Guide. James Wyatt gets the cover credit for the design, though he's also acknowledged the input from a ton of folks on the roster at the time as well. Of course, the DMG does what every DMG before and since is done, provides as comprehensive a look at how to DM a campaign for the addition of the game as it can. And as you might expect, this includes building encounters, combat underwater and mounted, or mounted on the water, hell, I don't judge. It's also got skill challenges, traps, rewards, NPC creation, artifacts, monster creation, and a sample town and short adventure that the DM could use to jump right into the new edition of the game. Again, if you've been running D&D for a while, you might notice there's something missing from the list I just read off. Magic items. Fourth edition was the first edition of D&D to not include standard magic items in the DMG. Cue the pissed off players again. Now, I do have to say, this didn't annoy nearly as many people as some of the other changes, which we'll get into later on. But I can say that, personally, it was annoying as hell. I like to have magic items in my DMG so I can bookmark them for access while I'm building my adventure. And then I can have them bookmarked for easy access when I'm running the game, because if my group goes looking for specific items, I can flip the book open and look. Not having that to start with, yeah, that sucked. It really did. I should also note that this DMG covered adventures for groups from level 1 to 10, which Wizards had defined as the heroic levels. Again, I'm going to get a little more into this as we move along. But before I start to rant, forget to mention it, let's also mention the Monster Manual. Well, the first one, anyway. It was designed by Mike Merles, Stephen Schubert, and James Wyatt, and had some sweet artwork on the cover of the Demon Priest Orcus. Okay, so the core books for 4th edition are out there now. Let's get into some of these changes and discuss why they annoyed so many people. The thing we need to understand in all of this is that 4th edition basically did a full-on mechanical overhaul of the system. Things became so specific in detail that miniatures were basically now required if you wanted to be able to keep accurate track of what was going on. For those who'd already been using minis, that wasn't a big deal. For groups like mine, however, which prefer more of a theater of the mind experience, this was a major pain in the ass. The major mechanical add to this edition of the game was the addition of powers. These came in three flavors, at will, per encounter, and per day. All of these powers provide advantages in combat, and they can do things like inflict status effects, creating zones that are bad for the enemy, or force movement, among other things. You see what I mean about minis being required for this edition? <laughs> it's the addition of the powers themselves that tends to be the most controversial aspect of this edition and the one that causes the most arguments among players. Hell, I was just involved in a discussion about 4th edition this past weekend at Archon. So 14 years after the game came out, people are still pissed about it. 
I kind of thought I was the only one that had that kind of impact on people. <laughs> who knew? For those who don't know or weren't a part of the gaming world when this edition came out, the primary argument against the powers was that, in the words of many of its opponents, it turned D&D into a tabletop video game. That particular argument was supported by pointing at the powers and comparing them to the various buffs many video games at the time provided to players in order to make them more powerful, and thus better able to kick ass, take names, and win the game. This was yet another time that some in the gaming world accused a gaming company of catering to the younger audience, most of whom would be coming from the world of video games. However, I didn't engage in that particular part of the argument, since I don't really care what you played before you got into tabletop role-playing games. I'm just glad you finally showed up to the party. And I know what you're thinking. Could the powers really be that bad? Look, I'm not going to get into bad or good. What I will say is there was a shit ton of them available, and they were available for all classes. So even the spell slingers had powers they could use to make their spells that much more powerful or effective. In that regard, anyway, I don't necessarily disagree with many of the comments I've read and heard over the years. I think wizards did overpower the game a bit. And this focus on the powers did something else that many of us, and I include myself on this, didn't like. It turned the focus of a game more to combat and less to roleplay, since the powers were almost exclusively tuned to combat. Fourth edition is also the first time we see the long rest and the short rest, and those have stuck around into fifth edition, and I'll assume they'll stick around in the next version of the game. The long rest is eight hours of sleep, while the short rest is considered to be four hours, but sleep isn't necessarily a part of it. This change also caused many in the game world to groan, and it still does, by the way. Before this change, it was understood that unless it was life or death for your characters, you needed to manage your resources, and in this case I mean hit points, action surges if you had them, spells, and special abilities. The idea was that once you entered that dungeon, you were going to get as much of it conquered as you could before you retreated to find a good place to set up camp and sleep so you could regain all your goodies. With the short rest being introduced, which provides a partial restoration of resources, the mindset of a player could change as well. It now wasn't quite so important to manage your resources, since you could find a room you'd already cleared out, bar the door, get a four-hour nap, and then go back out to kick ass. And that really doesn't bother me too much, but I can see how it sticks in the collective craws of some of the more old-school gamers. I also mentioned the change in levels. I should add that prestige classes were also eliminated in 4th edition, with 10 level batches organized into Heroic, which was 1 to 10, Paragon, which was 11 to 20, and Epic Destiny, which was 21 to 30. And as you can see, the maximum level cap was also increased to 30 with the changes. The concept of the Paragon came with the Paragon Path, which the player would choose for their character based on their class at level 11, and the character would gain new powers from that path as they moved on. At level 21, the player would choose an Epic Destiny for their character, and it worked very similar to the way the Paragon worked. Again, for many gamers, this smelled a lot like the advancement system in some video games, and only worked to reinforce their opinions of 4th edition, and it did it in a negative way. So when you hear players talk about how controversial 4th edition D&D is and was, these things are primarily what they're talking about. But they're not the only thing. There's two more things that tend to piss off this group of gamers, and I'm going to get to them a little later on in the show. First, let's get into those additional players' handbooks, dungeon masters' guides, and monster manuals that were released to support 4th edition. Actually, before we do that, I want to take a minute to mention that the new release plan for Wizards with 4th edition was to release three core books and three setting books each year. For 2008, the setting books were for the Forgotten Realms, which was the most popular setting in D&D to this point, which should have meant the books would fly off the shelves. Yeah, that didn't happen. 
The Forgotten Realms Campaign Guide, the Forgotten Realms Player's Guide, and the Adventure Scepter Tower of Spellguard were all released in 2008, and while they sold, they didn't sell as well as expected. Certainly not as well as the releases for 3rd Edition had. And by the way, that was including some of those 3rd Edition books that got critically trashed. Most writers agree that the reason for this is that there were still so many people pissed at Wizards for the 4th Edition changes, not even the mighty Forgotten Realms could save it at that point. Now, I bought them, but I'm kind of a gaming pack rat like that. When a new system comes out, I tend to buy all of the new releases for it and then just assimilate them into my games. In this case, I was apparently in the minority. Anyway, let's move on to 2009. In March of that year, the Player's Handbook 2 was released. Rob Heinsu, Mike Merles, and Robert J. Schwab get creative credit for this book, and it brought the Avenger, Barbarian, Bard, Druid, Invoker, Shaman, Sorcerer, and Warden classes in, and added the Deva, Gnome, Goliath, Half-Orc, and Shifter classes to the game. The DMG 2 came out in September of 2009, and Greg Gordon, Robin D. Laws, and Mike Merles were the writers. DMG2 went a bit deeper into the DM's creative process, getting into group storytelling, advanced encounters, skill challenges, customizing monsters, and working in those adventures and campaigns for Paragon-level characters. This version also has standard magic items, which means the creative team had at least somewhat listened to the feedback from their players. Monster Manual 2 also dropped in 2009, and Rob Heinsu and Chris Sims were the writers responsible. Centaurs and Frost Giants show up here after having been omitted from the first book. They also get into monsters to challenge at the three different character tiers, Heroic, Paragon, and Epic level, and provide ways to modify existing monsters to fit those challenges. Now, it should also be added that the Eberron setting made its fourth edition debut during 2009, and it was much better received than the Forgotten Realms had been. In fact, all of the books that came out in 2009 were better received. Most writers agree it was most likely due to the fact that by this point, the gamers who'd been railing against 4th edition throughout 2008 had moved on, either back to D&D 3rd edition or to Pathfinder, and those who were left were legitimately interested in seeing what the 4th edition system could bring to them. One other thing that might have helped with this series of books is the DMG2 contained an update for the Sigil setting which hadn't been used in official D&D materials since the Planescape setting books back in 2nd edition. Sigil had been a fan-favorite setting since its introduction in 1994, and players had been practically begging Wizards for a 3rd edition upgrade. While that didn't officially happen at the time, they did bring it out here, though in a smaller version than fans might have wanted. There's one more release in this part of the line I wanted to hit on before we move on. The Player's Handbook 3 was dropped on March 16th, 2010, and was designed by Mike Merles, Bruce R. Cordell, and Robert J. Schwalb. It included the Ardent, Battleming, Monk, Scion, Ruin Priest, and Seeker classes, and the Wilden, Minotaur, Githzari, and Shardmine races. There were also new rules included for multi-classing hybrid characters, which hadn't been a part of the previous two installments. Again, the book sold fairly well, and again, we can assume it's because most of the naysayers had moved on at that point. So with all these books having been released, one could safely say Wizards won the argument, right? No need to make any more changes? <laughs> this is Wizards we're talking about. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. By 2010, Wizards of the Coast had decided they'd done as much as they could to bring established gamers over to 4th edition. What they decided to do next was to come up with a way to bring in the gamer who'd either never gamed before or who'd never played D&D before. And they decided that to do that, they'd need to renovate the edition a bit. Yeah, they decided to renovate a barely two-year-old system. Normally, this is where I'd say something snarky about the old school gamers coming back into the room to be pissed off, but they'd already thrown in the towel and started playing something else. 
The folks who'd stuck around and bought all the new materials over the past few years got pissed off though, especially with some of the changes that were made. Wizards called the upgrade the Essential System, and while they stated up front it wasn't a new edition of the game, they did concede that they utilized all the errata they'd come up with over two plus years and fixed the game. But as we'll note, they also snuck in some changes in there that actually changed the system itself. The Essential System was designed to be a lower cost option for new gamers so that they'd be more inclined to purchase the book and get into the system. And it brought back something most gamers hadn't seen in nearly 20 years at that point, a boxed starter set. Much like the old basic rules from the late 70s and early 80s, this edition had just enough information in it for a group to get started and run for a few levels before needing to upgrade to the new books. And it was intended for players to move up to the essential books from here, though upgrading to the big books was also fine since Wizards would still be getting a 4E player either way. The design of most of the books in the Essentials line was also different. They were trade paperbacks laid out in the Digest style, and we've discussed that a hundred times before in this show. Four books came out overall, with three of them releasing in October of 2010. We'll start with Heroes of the Fallen Lands, which was the first of two players' books released. Andy Collins, Jeremy Crawford, Mike Merles, Stephen Schubert, Bill Slavichek, Rodney Thompson, and James Wyatt were the designers for this book, and it included a series of new builds and character options for the Cleric, Fighter, Rogue, and Wizard. Heroes of the Fallen Lands also cleans up the powers, the class features, Paragon Paths, and Epic Destinies, eliminating some from the previous editions and putting in some new ones. It also provides some new racial traits for dwarves, eladrim, elves, halflings, and humans. One more thing that it does is to reduce, if not fully eliminate, the number of fighter powers available in a day, which makes the power system for wizards and spellslinger types more powerful than that for fighters and gives the spellslingers something that makes them stand out just a little bit more. I want to drop in a quick review here to give you an idea of what the critics thought of the essentials. Scott Wachter reviewed this for RPG Gamer. He said, quote, This book could have been a fantastic introduction to 4th edition D&D, but as it stands, it feels like two-thirds of a game manual and one-sixth marketing ploy, which means it still adds up to being an incomplete product. If you are completely new to gaming, this is a good point to get a feel for how it works. But if you're just looking to get your feet wet with 4E, you might as well go straight for the deep end with a real player's handbook. End quote. The Dungeon Master's Kit was another box set in the line, and it was intended for the DM to move from the starter box directly to this box. Designed by James Wyatt and Jeremy Crawford, the box had a 256 book of rules and advice for DMs, two 32-page adventures, two sheets of die-cut monster tokens, two double-sided battle maps, and a DM screen and it was designed for the DM to run the group all the way up to 30th level. The book portion of this box got a re-release on November 19th, 2013, but that was a PDF-only release. While we're at it, let's do another review. Critical Hits disliked the product so much, instead of a review article, they did a full editorial. Here's a piece of it. Quote, Here's my beef with the product. Taken alone as a product, this box set is extremely useful to new DMs. But as a product line... D&D Essential lost a lot of its new shine when I realized that this book reprinted word for word large swaths of text from the Rules Compendium and Heroes of Fallen Lands. Please don't get me wrong. I love the Essential line so far, especially the new PC builds. Yet I fear that many customers like myself are going to have similar negative reactions when they go through the books. The D&D Essentials DM Kit is an excellent high quality product for new DMs that graduate from the Red Box. End quote. The third release of the three was Monster Vault. 
Written by Logan Bonner, Matthew Cernet, and Rodney Thompson, the Monster Vault collected as many of the monsters of the D&D world as it could and provided new takes on dragons, orcs, and vampires with their new variants. Each monster entry also has story information to assist the DM in figuring out how to incorporate them into their campaign. There's also die-cut tokens for each monster and a 32-page adventure to showcase several of them. I think the review we did for the DM box was enough for the moment, so I'm not going to do another one here. What I will say is that Monster Vault won a Silver Any Award for Best Monster Slash Adversary. The last book in the line is Heroes of the Forgotten Kingdoms. Written by Mike Merles and assisted by most of the creative team, this book brought new builds for the Druid, Paladin, Ranger, and Warlock. By the way, the Hexblade, which Matt Colville has done a variation on in some of his games on YouTube, makes its appearance here as the Warlock variant. Much like Heroes of the Fallen Lands, there are more or different powers, class features, hero, paragon, and epic stuff, and new racial features. Heroes of the Forgotten Kingdom also got a PDF release on September 1st, 2015. Now, most of the reviewers of this book noticed the same thing. Heroes of the Fallen Lands and Heroes of the Forgotten Kingdoms seem to be practically identical for about 70 pages. However, once you get past that, Forgotten Kingdoms does have a lot of useful information in it, though reviewers continue to note that a player would be better off buying the regular books instead of the Essentials line. And the sales numbers seem to prove that out as well. While Essentials sold okay, it never got anywhere near the numbers Wizards had hoped for, and when that was combined with the lower than expected numbers for the rest of the edition, it was pretty quickly determined that another new edition would probably be the answer. That would be 5th edition, and that's going to be another show down the line. Okay, so a bit ago I mentioned that there were two other reasons gamers were mad about the 4th edition. Needless to say, the release of Essentials tended to upset folks, especially those who'd shelled out for all the books to that point, only to find out Wizards was basically dumping them for another new system. The other point is one that started out with a lot of promise, but wound up falling flat. When 4th edition was announced, it was also announced that this edition of D&D would also be supported online with what was called D&D Insider. As pitched to the game community, Insider was eventually going to be a fully immersive program, allowing for the creation of characters online, as well as providing DMs with a desktop program they could use to build their maps and encounters, and maybe even run the game on. Now remember, this was 2008. Yes, I realize 2008 wasn't the Stone Age for computer technology. However, some of what was being promised certainly seemed like it was well ahead of its time. And turned out it was the case. While the character creator was available at launch, the dungeon builder was never fully realized, and it quickly became apparent it was due to the technology of that time. Sure, now we've got dozens of different options out there to build a dungeon and run our players through it online. But with the monthly cost of D&D Insider being what it was, just having an online character builder didn't cut it for some players and DMs. For me, I used it for the duration of the time I ran 4E, and I thought the builder was quite nice. It incorporated all of the books, so unlike D&D Beyond, I didn't have to buy the books I needed for the characters in my campaign. I could also print out sheets with just the powers each individual player had, and I could hand it to them, so they wouldn't have to keep looking them up in the book every time they needed them. Like I said, though, I get why some people were upset about this. When you're promised steak and you get a hot dog, you're going to be a little upset, even if that hot dog just happens to be the best hot dog you've ever eaten. So in the minds of the naysayers, it was just another nail in the 4E coffin. But we can thank Insider for D&D Beyond, since Beyond is the spiritual successor. Now, 
Over the past decade or so, I've talked to a lot of folks who've run 4E and their experiences vary. I myself ran 4E for two separate groups and those experiences were night and day. My regular group ran it, hated it, and immediately begged me to switch back to 3E, which I did. A certain part of that was the complexity of the rules, which made it hard to concentrate on running characters because of having to constantly stop the flow of the game to look up rules. Also, a couple of my players at the time were pissed that Wizards was selling out to the munchkins. However, I had a second group that I ran for, my two nieces and their friends. It's the one and only time I've been the only cis male at a game table, and running for them? (laughs) That was fun. They got into the rules fairly quickly or were more willing to toss the things they didn't like and focus on the things they did like. That's a game we still talk about when we're all together, including at my oldest niece's wedding several years ago when I was the officiant and all four women were there. We kept tossing some of the more memorable lines back at each other from that game while we were in the back waiting to go out to start the ceremony. Those were fun times. And for me, that's what a game should be. Fun times that you'll remember for years later. For some... 4E provided that. For others, it really only provided nightmares. Overall, I I really wasn't a fan of 4E, but I won't say I hate it. Instead, I'd prefer to say that while I did run it at one time, I'm not really interested in running it today. That being said, there are certain rules from that edition that I've been known to sneak into a 5E game from time to time. And if you're curious about that, I'd suggest watching Matt Colville's Running the Game series on YouTube because he and I think alike in that regard. And I was doing some of what he's talking about doing long before I ever saw it in his video. And if you do it right, your players won't even know it. Anyway, with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. Next week, I'm going to stay in the D&D world because I want to cover a setting that you either love or you have no clue what the hell it's all about. Spelljammer. As we wrap up this week, I wanted to take a minute to thank all of the folks who came up to our table at Archon 45 last weekend. I jokingly tweeted at one point that I must officially be a gaming content creator since I sat through a number of stories from gamers who told me all about their favorite Deadlands Classics games. But you know what? I wouldn't have had it any other way. And we're already working up our plans for next year's con, and I can assure you it's going to be bigger and better than what we did this year. I also had a few folks on Twitter ask me when the Bad GM team will be heading back out for another con. The easy answer is this. If it's local to us, which is the Metro St. Louis area and about an hour or two around it, we'll probably try to be there, though not necessarily with a full booth or a table. Beyond that, Well, hey, if you're part of running or organizing a convention or you know somebody who is and you're interested in having us there, I find it very hard to say no to an invitation. So just keep listening to the shows and checking out the website. We'll update things as we put together our schedule of events. We've got a new episode of Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along up now, and this week I finally managed to bust through the writer's block and figured out how to move our campaign along. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod. On Twitter at badgmp, YouTube, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we get to jamming our spells. No, wait, I meant we get to spell jammer. There we go. (laughs) But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.